Amen. Goodness. All right, you can be seated. Hello, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Philippians chapter 2, a New Testament letter. After the Gospels is the book of Philippians, called Philippians. We're going to be in the book of uh, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 and work our way down for a little ways. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll put the words on the screen. Love to give you a copy of the Bible and a modern English translation on your way out. <clears throat> Whoa, that's some good stuff. Listen, if you're the preacher, you got to be careful with music like that because you start scream singing out of your joy and then you got nothing left for the sermon. I had to pull back on that last song uh, so I can speak to you this morning. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 begins to address something that steals joy. So we've been talking about joy rejoicing in the battle. That's the name of this series. But it's the name of the series because it's the theme within the book of Philippians. If you read it and just look for repeated words, that's a way to see what the theme or a, a strong recurring theme in a portion of Scripture is. And the word rejoice comes again and again and again. Paul is writing us these things that we may rejoice. And the context, he's rejoicing from a prison cell. Poor guy, he's, he's rejoicing in suffering. But it's not the suffering of, well, you know, Paul, if you don't want to go to jail, quit stealing things. You know, like, no, he wasn't in jail for his own um, misdemeanors. He's in jail for the reason that he's joyful. There's a connection between his suffering and the thing he rejoices in through his suffering. So we got to understand it. We want to capture this joy. We want to understand the results of the gospel and, and rejoice that it's a, a joy that exists even in great difficulty and pain. Now, if we're going to do that, we've been looking at lots of ways to do that. But there's also this concept, this idea that, that you got to pull some of the hindrances out. you got to weed the garden a little bit. There's stuff in you that because of its presence is, is stealing your joy. And we got to get rid of it. And the one that he's going to highlight here is, is pride. He actually, he says selfish ambition. He, he says conceit. He talks about thinking of yourself before, more significant than others. But I think the word that, that he uses other places and the scripture uses to describe this concept is, is pride. And it's a dangerous thing. It seems like a good thing. It seems like even something enjoyable. To feel good about yourself, to feel good that other people feel good about you, to take joy in your own goodness, your own beauty, your own humor, your own effectiveness. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous. If you want to lose weight, heroin will work. You will lose a lot of weight on heroin. But there's other effects. There's a downside. I'm glad I can put that before you so you don't tripped up by that option. If you want joy, pride can make you feel good, but there are side effects. And Augustine, a guy whose shadow looms large over the history of the church, said it was pride that turned angels into devils. So what is this, this substance? What is this poison and how could Christians be tempted by it? How do we avoid anything like it? Well, let's go. Philippians 2, it says in verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete uh, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He begins by encouraging them to love one another. The, the fact that they are in this gospel, they've received this grace from God, is, is not just uniting them to God, it's uniting them to each other. That there's this cohesiveness that comes from enjoying the same love, drinking from the same fountain of blessing. That, that there would be things that get between you, but you need to fight against that. You need to love each other. And he, he hinges it on these sort of rhetoricals. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if Superman is strong, if the sun is hot, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then unite. Then he goes on to highlight the way pride can be the thing that pulls you apart. And as we continue in this, I do want to stop for a moment and kind of it's just the way it's sort of organized through the text, but, but and just encourage you with the way that you love one another. At Hope Church, we are going to follow Scripture. That's our thing. And the Scripture is really clear with what Jesus has for us to do, to go and make disciples. That's what he said. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. It's a great commission right at the end of Matthew. Acts 1.8, he's sending us out. That's, that's what he told us to do. So, headline, glorify God by making disciples of all nations and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Love one another. So, you should care for each other. You should spend time with each other. Best way to do that is to spend time with each other on that mission. The way Rachel and I sometimes do this, we'll, we'll try to make friends in the community, invite them over for dinner, and the hope being that we become friends, we actually build a bridge of love that we're able to share the gospel across. And, you know, we invite people from the church to come at the same time. You invite a family and a family. Usually, the people that you just met canceled the last minute. And then, hey, you've still got people coming to enjoy the house you finally cleaned and the food that you cooked. So, it's just a little strategy for you. But I think from the passage directly, he's talking about the way that humility fosters and pride destroys our community. Maybe a good test for whether or not you're proud is the way in which you're getting along with other people. I don't think you scour your heart and look for, for bitterness, look for discord, and instead have this same mind, be of this same love. He continues and he says in verse 3, this is where all of this pride and humility stuff is coming into it. He says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, that's crazy to think that a Christian could be proud. Because if you know what a Christian is, then you know that every Christian, in order to be a Christian, has confessed to being a sinner. That word is a Christian word. 
you know, we talk about people who break the law as sinners, but we, we, when we talk about it outside of the church, we usually just describe them as what they did. You know, they're a speeder or they're a thief or they're a whatever. That word sinner, it's a religious word. It's a Bible word because it means to break God's law. And what a Christian is is not a good person. We talked about this when we talked to the Lord's Supper. The people who take the Lord's Supper have to take it. Because they're remembering that they had to be forgiven. Not good people. They're sinners. That's what Christians say about themselves when they become Christians. They admit that a holy God exists. And that we have broken his standard. We've broken his law. We've distanced ourselves from him. If that's what it is to be a Christian, to confess that you're a sinner, it goes even further. You don't just confess that you're a sinner. You also confess that the only remedy, your, your sin, whatever that is, was so drastic, so bad, so corrupting, that the only way to get the mold out, the only way to clean, to scour what you have defaced is for Christ to die. The only substance that can clean your sin is the blood of God. Well, that's saying something hefty about yourself. That's confessing. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the, the motion to repent. That piece, you're repenting of something drastic. So somebody could rightly ask, how can a Christian ever be a proud person? Doesn't seem weird to say that about yourself and then to somehow at the same time, it's almost schizophrenic, the same time to say something really positive about yourself, really wonderful. Well, I know that the, <laughs> the Son of God himself had to die for me, but I'm actually really funny. In the right light with my good shirt, I'm pretty attractive. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't go together. But so often, we are proud. Pride does come along in Christianity, and it comes along within Christianity. It comes along as spiritual pride. And I want us to think about it and focus on it, because that's what Paul did in this passage. He's telling us that not, not, not do this. We want to be rejoicing in the battle. We need to see spiritual pride and hate it. There, the spiritual pride does come, though, and it comes within somebody who is a Christian because, well, because we're sinners, but, but the way in which it does come about. So, you become a Christian, meaning that you see your sin, you confess that you've broken God's holy law, you come to Christ and say, I can't do anything, I've already done all of the sin, the only way I can be back in God's presence is for you to forgive me. Lord, please forgive me. Then you become a Christian. Now, you go through the Christian life and you immediately start to notice that you're still doing the same things you were doing. You're still sinning. You're still noticing that sin before a holy God. And if so, you still do what you did when you became a Christian. You still take that sin to a holy God and say, oh, Lord, forgive me. Just like you do in any relationship that you have. If you sever that relationship, break that relationship, harm that relationship, then you, you go to repair. You, you ask for forgiveness for that. Thomas Watson, Puritan guy, he talked about the Christian life being like a bird flying, and it's got two wings to fly. It's got faith and repentance. 
this constant. You're constantly having to remember who God is and who you are before Him. You're constantly having to remember, repent, by remembering what Christ has done on your behalf. You're constantly having to preach this gospel to yourself and such. You fly. But there are other options, or at least there are other things people do. Instead of repenting, or maybe even because you used to repent, you can decide that, you know, maybe you now are a good person. I know that I used to not be a good person, but, but Christ did change me, so, you know, maybe now I'm good. Again, that's nuts, but a lot of people do that. If you're honest with yourself, maybe even you do that. Oh, yeah, I know, I know, that was, that was really bad. I'm glad I'm not like that anymore. And in Christ, you are a new creation, but let's be real about how you really do live. Listen, if you, if you can fool yourself about who you are, it's an excellent way to fight shame. The way you're supposed to deal with shame is to remember that God still loves you and He's forgiven you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're supposed to preach to yourself. But if you don't want to do that, it's a very humbling process. If you don't want to do that, you could just compare yourself to other people. That's what spiritual pride does a lot. I'm not that bad because at least I'm not as bad as. Fill in the blank. Jerry Seinfeld. Now, I, I have come out before as somebody who thinks that he's a funny person. But this actual illustration I got from a pastor. So, you know, I was probably listening to a sermon. But this pastor said about Jerry Seinfeld that he would make these jokes about fat people. And fat people in the audience would laugh. And other comedians asked him about that. Like, how, how are you making jokes that make fun of people that are bigger and those bigger people laugh? And this was, you know, way back when you could make, before bot equality and that old Navy commercial, you know, solved all this for us. But way back when you could, you know, make jokes about fat people and the only people not laughing were, you know, the fat people. Jerry could make everybody laugh. And they said, well, how, how do you do that? How does that work? And he said, well, the 300-person guy, 300-pound guy laughs at the joke because he thinks I'm making fun of the 400-person pound person behind him. Does that make sense? I know I didn't say it well. But the 300-pound guy thinks you're talking about the 400-pound guy. Well, I know that I'm not, you know, as fit as I was in high school, but at least I'm not like that guy. It's a comparison. And Christians do it every day. Because you look at other people, you're hardly objective, but you look at other people and say, well, at least I don't do that. Or at least I don't do that because I do what he does. Yeah, let's be real, I do that. But at least I don't do it like he does it or to the extent he does it. And this is where some of Jesus' stuff about judging comes to play. You know, we talk about judgment in our culture a lot, and we use it kind of as a way to say, don't tell me anything that I do is wrong. But that's not biblical, clearly. I think what he means is don't look at other people and decide you're better than they are. Don't look at other people and be like, okay, well, but at least I don't do that. That comparison game where you assign your worth based on your perception of yourself versus other people, that's judging. Don't do that. If you do, it can get you out of some shame but not on the long term. It's, it's heroin to lose weight. It's a terrible way to fix a problem that God has fixed in the gospel. What you need instead is the humbling blessing of the gospel. 
you need to be able to see both God's love and God's holiness. And that's the answer that Paul gives. He continues. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So don't do anything out of selfish ambition and conceit. Do live your life out of humility. And you do this by thinking about your example, doing what God has done for you in this primary example of Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's describing here the first thing we need to understand, which is the visceral love that God has for you. To say that God loves you and you're proud, well, of course he does. If you're a proud person and somebody tells you that God loves you, you're not really that surprised. Well, why wouldn't he? Have you met me? right? But that's not Christian love. Christian love is a a love of God while we were yet sinners. So here's the picture that we get from Scripture. You go to the Old Testament, and a lot of what happened in the Old Testament seems very confusing, but if you'll understand it, you'll see that God is using all of these different things that are happening as a way to show us the gospel, I can totally sustain that. If you want to go through book by book, we can. But through the Old Testament, especially the people of Israel, God is showing us how a holy God interacts with a sinful people through His love and forgiveness, His, his ability to both be holy and be the just, just and the justifier of those who have broken God's law. And one way that He does that is through these prophets. He'll have these prophets sort of live out a metaphor for his relationship to Israel. Poor Ezekiel, poor Jeremiah, poor Isaiah, poor Hosea. In the book of Hosea, this prophet is called by God to go and marry a prostitute. Probably the only time God ever told somebody to marry an unbeliever. He told him to go and marry a prostitute and to bring her home. Treat her like a wife. And she leaves him. She goes back to prostitution. She chose it. She goes back to it. God calls Hosea to go and to redeem her, to buy her back again. She sells herself into slavery, so it's not like he purchased her, but he had to, like, redeem her. He had to buy her back from her slavery. Not to live as a servant, but to, again, be his wife. That's a hard calling from God. But Hosea got a front row seat both to the sinfulness of man and the unbelievable love of God. Because the reason God had Hosea do that is he is showing Israel how they treat him. He's showing Israel the senselessness of turning back again and again and again and again to God's slash ultimate things that will satisfy that aren't him. And yet, 
Though they do that again and again and again, like Hosea, and because the whole reason Hosea had to go back and get her is that God is showing that he is still coming for you. He still wants you. He will still redeem you. In Hosea 11, 8 and 9, it says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I make you, treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. That's the word. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That word recoils. I want you to see the love of God. You've got to see yourself in order to see the love of God. But, but I want you to see the love of God when he talks about his heart recoiling within him. Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, fantastic book. Please get it and read it. He talks about this passage and he says, God is saying talks about his heart recoiling within him. God is saying his insides are in turmoil on behalf of his people. This is not so much God talking about the pain of betrayal as it is God revealing his intense compassion for his people. It reveals the depth of his desire to bring his people back to himself. That's what God feels when he looks at you. Yesterday, obviously, cold and rainy day. One of my daughters had a soccer game. Poor thing. She had to play soccer in it. And they're young enough, and, you know, we're not athletes in my family. It wasn't like the fires of competition were going to get her through it. She's going to now just sort of stand there and not play soccer in the rain and the cold, right? So we get there. She had some extra clothes on, clearly not enough. And I realized that I had just way missed the mark as her dad. We hadn't dressed her warmly enough. So... Another adult was there. We're good. I went back to the house to get her jacket, get her like ear warmers and some gloves, try and like get her warm enough. And we're like 15 minutes from the field. So it's 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. And as I'm on the way to the house and then on the way back, I have that feeling, that growing anxiety of the, the picture of my daughter, this little girl, standing in the cold and the rain, just shivering. And I've got what she needs, and I'm, I'm racing. I'm trying to get back to her. And you, you feel that. And, of course, I'm a preacher. So I'm in the moment feeling that, but also thinking, like, how will this work for the sermon? <laughs> I want... I want to help her. But, you know, she's a kid in a soccer game. They got good circulation. She's going to be fine. That's not really what's being described here. So then I took another step. It was a way more drastic step, but unfortunately, crazily, it's still not far enough. Do you ever see the Liam Neeson movie, movie uh, Taken? Don't see it. <laughs> Just read the synopsis and you get it. The concept is that this guy's daughter goes to Europe, don't go to Europe, goes to Europe and gets stolen, gets taken. She gets abducted by the modern slave trade, gets made into a, a person that's part of the sex trafficking world. 
And Liam Neeson, as it turns out, you know, has these skills or whatever, and he's going to go try and get her back. And the movie is supposed to be like, oh, it's kind of born identity, but no, it's not just cool action. It's super, super scary because that stuff happens. And they've got these scenes where he's close. And it's, they try to downplay it because otherwise, how could anybody endure the movie? But you just see him as a father and his concern for his, his heart recoils within him. But that's not even our situation with God. In that movie, she was taken. That's why it's called. The description of Homer, uh, Hosea and Gomer is a description of us leaving again and again. See, if Liam was anywhere close, he could call her and she would come, right? God's description of us in our sin is a description of somebody he calls to and we run away, back to, choosing to be trafficked rather than loved. And that's crazy, but it's also the human condition. We keep going to things that won't satisfy, and we're skeptical that the God of the universe, the one who created us, has the ability to fulfill us, to actually give us joy. And so we choose instead a thousand things. But what he's focused on here, pride. Do you feel how the Father loves you? Can you take those steps up? To understand that he, his heart recoils within him because he wants to bring you back from all of that stuff to his self, to his embrace. The unspeakable love of God. And yet also the unspeakable holiness of God. Throughout Scripture, these things called angels exist. And when they come, they freak everybody out because angels are not babies with harps and wings. Angels exist in the presence of God. Now, here's the next big giant break that we have when it comes to God himself, but then also these angelic beings. When we think about things that are spirits only, we think about less than. Because we are bodies with souls, so we think we must be more than, greater than. To only have a soul must be somehow less than. To only be spiritual, these spiritual beings like angels, must be somehow less than. But it's spiritual. It's not spectral. It's spiritual. They're, they're angels. They're not ghosts. They're not less than. They're greater than. And the reason I say that they're greater than is because God is a spirit. So it must be greater than. And anytime these angels come into our presence, it's as though... They're walking into something extremely fragile and frail. As they come in, they immediately have to say, please, please, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's going to be fine. Just stand up. I'm not God. I'm not going to kill you. And then they give their message. You go into other parts of Scripture and you have these angels that, thank God, are not sent to speak to us that often. Because they exist in God's presence, flying around his throne, and it's describing them with eyes and wings and this. It's, the description is enough to tell you that it's way beyond words. And the reason to see them and understand them and to be awed by them is to be awed by a holiness of God that is even greater than them. Because that's the point. They have to cover their eyes because even they cannot 
see the face of God. So great is he in his holiness. And that holiness has that gut-wrenching love for you. Why would you trade that for anything? How do we know it? Well, that's what the passage was, is that Christ has come to be that for you, that, that God has come from that holiness, emptied himself, becoming a man. And then becoming a man humbled himself even further, going down even to the grave in order to pay for your sin and mine and to make a way for us to be forgiven and invited back into God's presence. <laughs> oh, how he loves us. <laughs> and now we make it about us. He does that. And we say, oh, great. And immediately start trying to get people to be impressed with us. He does that. And then here's what should happen. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on Christ the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did he do that he gets this? <laughs> 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I just want you to see this gospel. If you see it, then you'll understand why it's crazy for you to really be impressed with yourself. If you see it, you'll, you'll see that it's crazy to try and make yourself better than the other people around you, inside this room or outside this room. You'll see that he loves you so much that, that the writer of the Psalms is right. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 23 says, uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't need anything else. So church, here's what you got to do. You got to humble yourself before the holiness and love of your Lord. And if you will, <laughs> rejoice. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask in this moment that you would highlight for us that kind of spiritual pride that we have that attempt to undercut shame, not by going to you and finding there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but to undercut shame by comparing ourselves with one another. Lord, to find joy in thinking of ourselves as wonderful rather than thinking of ourselves as loved by the one who really is wonder itself. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who find joy because we are a people who forget ourselves in the beauty of your face. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.